Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Brought to you by Great Clips. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and their family members who might be struggling with post-traumatic stress so they can get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Join me today as we talk to a very dear friend of mine, Rob Blancher, a United States Marine Corps veteran and Air Force veteran who served a total of 31 years in the military. Rob did four tours to Iraq in 2004, 2006, 2007, and 2009. Rob continues to give back today by helping veterans and their family members who are struggling with post-traumatic stress through our nonprofit, Take a Vet Fishing and Operation Healing Heroes. Join me today as we hear Rob's story. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey, Rob, thank you for joining us today. I certainly appreciate it. You and I have been friends now for a long time. Uh, this is long overdue as far as I'm concerned. So again, thank you for taking the time to uh, to share your story with us. Um, it's been an honor being a business partner of yours and, uh, and your entire family. So again, thank you for, for your service to our country. Thanks a lot, Jay. Appreciate it. Yeah, it, uh, once you're in the military, you're always in the military. And uh, I'm just able to give back after I even retired. So well, let's, uh, it was, it was a go ahead. that we were able to uh, get together and have the our first event. That's where we met. And yeah, here we are today. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, uh, I, I just wanted to, to say welcome to the show. Um, Rob, you were in the Marine Corps from 1974 to 1978. Uh, you got out and did a little stint in construction, as I understand it. And then you served again in the Air Force through the uh, Wisconsin Air National Guard from 1984 to uh, 2000, July of 2011. You deployed four times in Iraq, uh, 2004, 2006, 2007, and 2009 at Balad Air Base. Um, we'll talk all about that military time and service, but uh, I always like to start off the show so our listeners can understand uh, about your past and, and what was life like growing up? Where did you grow up? Did you have siblings? Uh, did you come from a military background? That type of thing. Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in McFarland. Um, let's see, my dad, mom and dad had their house there. Dad just sold his house, I think it was a year ago. He had been there like 72 years on Lake Wabisa. So I grew up fishing and that was that's what I did. I had, uh, uh, my siblings were six of us kids. My oldest sister, Debbie, um, she passed away several years ago right after my mom. Debbie had Down syndrome. So hmm. wherever we went, Debbie went with us. Uh, we were proud of her and she made, she made our family. She was the angel in our life. And, uh, so it was, then I had uh, uh, three other sisters. 
Susie, Sandy, and Joni, and my brother Joe. So my brother Joe and I uh, were still real close, and uh, so it's well, that's it's good. good. And we have yeah. your and dad I, served, uh, right? Yeah, my dad was in the Navy. Uh, actually, after World War II, my dad they had a <clears throat> a one year stint in the Navy, and my dad from uh, DeForest, Wisconsin, uh, and his buddies all went in for one year, and uh, that was before. Korean War, and they wanted they wanted the troops in there so they could just go back and uh, grab them uh, after after that. So, yeah, he was in the Navy, and he was on the uh, USS Roosevelt, the one that they uh, there was two of them at that time. But uh, he so he he was on that, and that was a dis, uh, that was a uh, um, what do you call them? Uh, aircraft carrier. Okay. So, yeah. And so. So yeah. Life growing up. I know you said you uh, you grew up on Lake Wabisa in, in McFarland, Wisconsin. Um, spent a lot of time outdoors, fishing and uh, hunting too. Or and, and was that all oh, yeah. brought upon by your dad? Was was your dad your mentor? Yeah. Yes. Uh, we we fished. Uh, we actually, I probably fed our family uh, three <laughs> days a week for fishing because we'd have we cleaned what we caught and we ate. They ate what. I caught. I I never liked fish till I got married. <laughs> Did your siblings fish? Did your sisters and your brother fish too? Uh, everybody. We all fished on the end of the pier. Uh, but my brother and I, I, I probably fished more than anybody. Um, I probably could have been a guide after I got out of high school, but they didn't have guides back then on Lake Wabisa or the Madison Chain. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but uh, we always fished. Uh, we when I was growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of fishing. Like we had bullheads. We'd sit at the end of the pier. There'd be probably five of us down there all with cane poles catching bullheads <clears throat> or and uh, sometimes bluegills but uh catfish would come by once in a while and he'd just snap everybody's line boom <laughs> boom 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 that was cool but yeah when i was like i remember the first time we went down fishing on the pier i was probably four my brother might have been three we're walking out on the pier and somebody yells my brother's name hey joe and I, all of a sudden he looks over and then he walks off the side of the pier into the lake oh no <laughs> so, we got, so we got him all cleaned up and went back down and started fishing <laughs> so was, yeah so fishing's, yeah, we lived been, on a, fishing's been a big part yeah. of your life ever since you were a child it sounds like huh oh yeah yeah, we are from ice fishing to any fishing and all Lake Wabisa. It's like we, I never really fished other lakes until I got a boat. And then we went up, I went up to Monona once in a while, and fished up there. Hmm. So, and so how about schooling? How, what was like life like uh, going to school? Yeah, school in McFarland back then, there was, I think the population was like uh, 20, 2700 for McFarland, we had 75 in our class. And I, I went from, you know, kindergarten all the way through, there's probably about 20 of us that went from kindergarten all the way through high school. Hmm. And my same, we had probably 75 graduate, but I was, uh, sports, I, I liked wrestling. Uh, I was small. Um, <clears throat> I, I went when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was, uh, I went out for football. Um, and I was a lineman. I was like a hundred pound lineman. But, <laughs> so they, Come after me, you know, I on defense and offense, and I could get a lot of tackles because I was a little guy. So, but after in ninth grade, I I was up against a couple of really big guys, and they they're all on line on the line, and that's like I got in a fight with one of the guys. It's like I'm not here to do this. I want to go fishing. So I just like <laughs> that was in the fall. So I just quit, started fishing. But uh, wrestling was my 
my forte. I when I was in like seventh grade, uh, we actually were in the high school during when I was in seventh grade at McFarland, and uh, <clears throat> I had some problems. Always, you know, I was a little guy. My brother, my brother Joe, was always bigger than me, so I was mm. never afraid of the big guy. And I just had a hot temper in seventh grade. And I I was in the office, I don't know, two or three times, and finally the wrestling coach comes up to me, said, "Rap." Come on out for wrestling. Do you have any friends in the neighborhood you get a ride from? I said, yeah. So I went out for wrestling, and that, that's, that's when it was, uh, there was just one uh, one division. The whole state of Wisconsin, you were wrestling against everybody. And There were no weight classes uh, or nothing? We had we had weight classes, but okay. it was like, and right now, like six different, if yeah. you have a smaller school in one division, there was just one division. We, we actually took, my senior year, we took third in state overall, Stoughton took first, and Stoughton was always that that big team. Mm. But uh, I used to have to wrestle all those guys. In fact, I know Steve Herbeck. Uh, we, I wrestled him as a senior, <clears throat> and uh, he beat me. So he, he, I think he took third in here. So we we're still we're still going to have a, a wrestling match together. One of the one there of you go <laughs> a rematch, a grunge match. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so. What led you into the military? At what point did you uh, did you decide, hey, this is you know, what I need to do? I, yeah, I graduated in 1972. I worked at a, a landscape company from the time I was 16. Uh, one of my buddies said, hey, who wants to work for Peach Landscape? And uh, so I went there, started out at $1.65 an hour. Hmm. Uh, that's what the that's what the wage was, the minimum wage. And I had to ask for every raise I ever got. And I worked there till I was 19. Uh, I think I ended up getting like three fifty an hour, but uh, I really liked it. And uh, I, but I would get laid off every winter, which in 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 my case it was good because I was living at home, and uh, my buddy, oh, his dad owned the Green Lantern, so and we had an ice fishing shack in the winter time. So I'd get laid fishing. off making forty two dollars a week on unemployment. <laughs> my bait and my beer. Back then, I could get a at happy hour down at the park bar. I get a beer for ten cents. Nice. <laughs> so, Nice. But that one, I got up and I was I was just catching walleyes all the time, and uh, some northern. I got up early in the morning. I was going to go out to the shack, get some bait, and go out to the shack. My dad's up. He's going to work. He said, "Rob, when are you going to go out and get a job?" I said, "Dad, you're eating better than you've ever eaten in your whole life. I'm catching walleyes. You're eating three meals a day. It's like for walleyes. It's like, hey, you know? Yeah. Okay." Well, I thought, well, I, I'd listened to him, you know, and I went up north uh, that summer before, or maybe it was after, and I worked at a resort up in Hayward, Wisconsin, uh, on uh, Big Cooter Ray, and across the street was Whitefish, so I worked a resort, I uh, worked lawns and buildings during the day, and then tended bar till 2 o'clock in the morning, we were about a quarter mile from the reservation, so it was awesome, I, I loved it, but I worked the summer, then I quit just kind of looking to get out of town, <clears throat> you know, cause it's like, I, I just wanted to see the world. I never saw the ocean. Yeah. I had been kind of the once uh, when I, I bought, when I was working at peach landscape, I bought a brand new 1973 Ford pickup. So my buddy and I went to Canada moose hunting. Uh, cool. so we did, but I, you know, went to Canada, but I'd never really been past like uh, Illinois or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, my brother gets a phone call one day from the Marine Corps recruiter. He said, no, I don't want to go, but here, talk to my brother. So I grabbed the phone. I said, yeah, I'll go in. And uh, at that time, they had a 
two-year enlistment. It was right at the end of the Vietnam War uh, in 74. And I went in, it's like I had took all their tests and everything. I went in, I wanted to go on a two-year enlistment and I failed the eye exam. Uh, my eyes have always been bad. And uh, they said, oh, you can't, I wanted to go, they, it was in the infantry. They said, oh, you can't do the infantry, uh, it's, you know, because your eyes. I said, well, I'll just carry an extra pair of glasses. They said, no, you can't do that. So I had to take, take another test for electronics and that type of thing. And I said, well, here, you, here's what you can be in the Marine Corps. You can be a jet engine mechanic. I said, okay. Uh, you mean aircraft? <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute. They, they yeah, don't I, want you to carry a gun and be an infantry, but they want you to be responsible for the nuts right. and bolts that are harder to see on an aircraft, right? Uh, well, yeah. I tested real high in mechanical skills. Mm -hmm. I never knew it. So the Marine Corps actually found my forte. So, Rob, it, it absolutely amazes me that, um, you know, hearing the way that different people have joined the military, and, and your story is no exception to that. So... Is it really true that the phone rang one morning or one day and Joe answers it and it was a Marine recruiter basically trying to get him to come into the military and Joe said, no, I don't want to go, but uh, here's my brother, talk to him. And, and that's how you got into the military? There's no pre-planning, no nothing? No, there really wasn't. I had always thought if I ever went into the service, it would be the Marine Corps. Uh, because I, when I was in high school, it was during that Vietnam War and a lot of our teachers uh, our history and geography teachers, they talked about the Vietnam War. Uh, the one teacher, Mr. Rice, his, he had brothers that were over there, and he would tell us about them every day. Uh, and I had a, another, one of our wrestling um, guys on the wrestling team, he never won a match until he was a senior in high school. And he ended up, he ended up going into the Marine Corps and I thought, wow, his name was John Unterbach, and he was a Vietnam veteran. And it's like, if he can do it, I can do it. And I had other friends that were going in, younger than me, older than me. It's like, if they can do it, I can do it too. So, and that's that's how it ended up. So I just uh, joined the Marine Corps, and I took some testing. I was going in as a two-year into the infantry, and uh, they had a two-year two tour. But it had to be infantry, and my eyes were too bad, so they said, ah, you have to take some more testing. Uh, you can't go in the infantry, but you'll have to, we'll see what you can do here. But it was going to be a four-year enlistment from a two to a four. And they, I took all the tests, and they said, hey, you can be a, a, a jet engine mechanic. And I said, you mean on aircraft? <laughs> I've never flown in an aircraft. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> Uh, and it just worked out. It's like my I scored high in the mechanical abilities, and I never knew I had those mechanical skills. My dad always said, "Rob, why don't you? You should be working uh, at a small place where you fix fix things because you're really good at taking stuff apart." I was always taking stuff apart and putting it back together. Radios, old radio, uh, I could fix just about anything just by looking at it. But I, I never really worked. My, my cars are nothing, bicycles, yeah, but I just, I had shop, shop classes, uh, uh, but I just, uh, I, I, was, I was, I liked art all the time, but it was just amazing how they, how they found out what I was good at. And That's just, interesting. Uh, and it really, yeah, so, it helped me 
tremendously. So it really helped you find your sense of purpose in life, really. I mean, by taking the, the, the entrance test, right? Yes, it did. I, I never knew I had a mechanical good. My, a mechanical skill to me was somebody who works on cars. You know, yeah. I didn't do that, but I still had good mechanical abilities. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of that is just uh, how you how you grew up and what what you did. I, I was always curious about everything. Hmm. Uh, but I went into boot camp, and uh, that you know that boot camp had nothing to do with what you were going to be. Everybody went through the same <laughs> the same hell. <laughs> Yes. And uh, I know, like, gosh, I, I weighed, weighed probably 125 pounds. And and I smoked back then. And I was the fastest runner out of the whole series, which is over about 350 troops. Wow. I was fastest wow. than anybody else. And I, I never went out for track because it was during fishing season. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? But I, I found it's like, wow. And I smoked. It's like, and I just enjoyed, I enjoyed everything in boot camp. It's like they break you down. And it's like, I think that when I got there, I could do, I think, uh, 13 pull-ups. Then I was, all of a sudden, I was doing like 16. Then I was doing 20. And I mean, by the time I came out of boot camp, I could do, I could almost do handstands 20, 30 or 40 of them. You wow. know? <laughs> well, if you Reverse don't mind... Um, I'm going to take a short break and I want to talk more about your, your military life and deployment. Uh, um, well, military life. I want to talk about boot camp specifically and I want to hear any of the stories that I'm sure you yeah. got some good stories regarding boot camp, but I want to hear oh, that. Yeah. Uh, and then also, of course, your, your four deployments to Iraq. So if you don't mind, we'll just take a quick short break and we will be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and buy Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. And we're talking to Rob Blancher, United States Marine Corps veteran and Air Force veteran. Uh, Rob, thank you again for sharing your story with us and, and uh, what life was like growing up, what led you into the military. We appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about life in the military. I'm sure you have some, um, maybe some great stories, maybe some not so great stories, but uh, again, feel free to share whatever you'd like. But yeah, sure. let's start, start back with boot camp. I think it's interesting to hear all these fascinating stories about, uh, like yeah. you just said, breaking you down mentally and building you right back up, but building you back up stronger. Yeah, it was all, it was all a team effort. You couldn't figure out why are they doing this to us? Well, it's all, everything has a purpose uh, because if once you're out of boot camp, they, you're, you have to be a team and you work as a team and it's, and it does work in the Marine Corps. Uh, once the Marine Corps, and I, I was just back to um, the physical fitness test. I aced that like uh, probably one month into boot camp 
Uh, so you have to have uh, three miles under 18 minutes, uh, 20 pull-ups and 80 sit-ups in two minutes. I mean, I could do pull-ups all day long by then. It's like everybody, they, they didn't like me because I was so light. He said, well, that, he looks like a frog doing pull-ups. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's like, it's like I'd get down and I'd smile at everybody. <laughs> I was done, you know, like. You should do more. I said, I'm not doing more. 100 is the max. That's where I'm going to stop. I'm going to save myself for my setups. And I'm going right. to do them in a minute. So, so I was good at that. Uh, also, I was good at like I, uh, the hardest thing I had in, in boot camp was swimming. Every Marine, you know, they go to swimming. And it's like I grew up on the lake and I still didn't know how to swim. Really? I mean, when I, yeah, when I was little, uh, we had a, we had a raft and I would get, I would, they would, my sisters and brother would put me on the raft and I'd take my fishing pole out and they'd pull, pull the raft out and I'd fish on the pier while they were jumping on and off the raft. I never, I never really, I was afraid of the water. Really? <clears throat> so I got through that by dog paddling. Uh, I get to, you know, I didn't do very well in it, but I passed it. That's all that mattered. Uh, the guys that really wanted to get their, I, I don't know what they called like first, uh, they, they had to jump in with a full, rifle and full gear and tread water for an hour it's like oh my that gosh. ain't gonna happen like that ain't gonna happen it didn't so i got through that but uh then the second hardest thing was the rifle it's like my you know since i was hunting my whole life my dad and brother oh yeah rob you'll do really good believe me there's a big difference from shooting a rifle for deer hunting and for pheasant hunting and grouse hunting than there is in the marine corps when you have the m16 you're shooting mm -hmm. at 200 meters meters and 500 meters uh it is awesome i mean you they all had that it was always i always liked listening to the some of the trainers they had these stories and uh they would tell he said well if you if you knew the winds the wind direction and how far charlie was <clears throat> you could hit him in the side of the helmet and that bullet would bounce off his head you just piss him off <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> it's like because everything back then it was everything was geared towards vietnam yeah uh, and, and it's that was cool but uh so after remember camp, that, where, do you, where do you end up uh, uh where do you get to, um stationed is your first yeah i went to i had to go to a and p school that was in memphis tennessee that was for about a month or two then i went out i was stationed at camp pendleton uh, oh. that's where i went and I had no idea what aircraft nobody knew what they were going to actually do what aircraft and uh, they made me a, a OV ten, a OV ten Bronco uh, mechanic was on the the T seventy six engine. It's a turboprop mm -hmm. plane that was used uh, quite a bit, and uh, I, I loved it. I was really good at it. I we had OJT training first, but uh, there was a couple things I was really good at, and that was following procedures by a, in a book. On the OB ten, it had a cam and link that had like five different arms and and three rig pins in it. And it had to be just precise exactly by the book. Otherwise, you'd have to start the whole thing over. And sometimes it'd take days to do it. I could do it the first time. Wow. So I so I go, uh, I did that. And we weren't really that busy. We'd, I'd help other people. And I'd go down to uh, help other, other shops with their engines, just whatever I could do to help. And in the Marine Corps, we had uh, the helicopters at Camp Pendleton, Hueys and Cobras, and then the OB-10. Bronco. So they had a, a prop shop. They had all the all the different shops right in the same shop. It was nice. What, what was really cool about that is our gunnery sergeant, after I got out of school, he would take us out on a fishing boat 
So we had the whole shop for half a day of fishing. <laughs> it was nice. just, it's kind of like what we do today. <laughs> and, uh, we, and the reason we went fishing is because we'd have a party on the beach every month and somebody either break a bone or get in trouble or roll a truck. Uh, so we'd have to, Oh, we can't do that. So we'll go fishing next month. You know, <laughs> so it's like, it was nice. just the way things, but I, I went to school for the, uh, T 76 engine and the first test I took, I failed and there are two or three of us failed it. So this gunnery sergeant in charge of the, the, uh, the school or that uh, of all of the students, he went back to my gunnery sergeant and said, you're going, you're going to the, you're going to the infantry. I said, you can't put me in the infantry. I tried to get in there. <laughs> you know he said, well, then I'll, I'll make you a truck driver. I said, well, I don't, I don't care. I, I can drive a truck. So he goes back to my gunnery sergeant in charge of the engine shop. He says, you're not taking this. You're not taking Blanchard from me or these other guys. He said, Blanchard is one of the two people in the shop that can rib, rig a cam and link. He said, you're not taking it. <laughs> so it's like, so that paid off for me, you know, uh, always wanting to learn something and just see something new and be the first one to do it. You know, it's like I, I always stepped up. Yeah, I went from uh, Camp Pendleton to Hawaii. Uh, I had a two-year tour in Hawaii and uh, Kaneohe Bay. Uh, and I was uh, went there as a OB-10 engine mechanic. I sent all of the uh, OB-10, OB-10s to the boneyard. And then they made me a F4, a J70, F4 Phantom J79 mechanic. So that's what I did. And I, I worked test cell when I was there. And I worked test cell. Um, when I was at Camp Pendleton too, that's where we test the engines applications. And I, I really enjoyed it, uh, hooking the engine up and watching it and having it perform, do leak checks uh, and all of the all the parameters you had to write down and make sure everything was right before they removed it and put the engine in the aircraft. So it was a blast. Also, that was so like the newest technology. You guys were testing the newest technology. Yeah, well, it was every in the, yeah every every engine, uh, no matter where you go. Uh, in the services, you have to test that engine before. If it has major maintenance done, uh, we have to put it on a test bed before they put it back in the aircraft. Because you, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff, you can't replace that part in the aircraft. You have to remove the engine. Hmm. If it had to be removed, if it had to be removed, you had to do a test cell run on it. Now, um, the smaller items, they call them LRUs, like the fuel control, the oil pumps, all kinds of the small stuff that were around the perimeter of the aircraft. You take a panel off, change that part, put a new part on. You could run it right in the aircraft. You didn't have to remove it. Mm -hmm. Anytime they removed, it had to go on to the test cell, be leak checked, and uh, uh, checks, all the different checks to get it back in service. So, so, so that, then I went, from there I went to Japan for six months. Uh, Iwakuni, Japan, that was the best duty I had in the Marine Corps. I loved it. So got to go to Japan. So you did get to actually see the world a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was in uh, Okinawa um, at Kadena Air Base. And that's where I learned that the Air Force had the best chow ever. <laughs> and they actually and they had air-conditioned barracks. It's like, huh, this is really good. I like it. So we went from there to Iwakuni, Japan, back living in the old barracks. No air conditioning. Rats running around. Wow. And, and you were there for, what, six months, he said? Six months. That was the first six-month tour they had to Iwakuni, Japan. Before that, there were one-year tours. Hmm. 
Okay. And then after that, is that when you end up getting out of the military or out of the Marine Corps, I should say, at least at at the end of that? I'd been in the Marine Corps for four years. When I went to Hawaii, you could not afford to go home. It was really sad because all these guys that were married, they didn't see their wife for two years. We were over there. It was a two-year tour. Wow. Unless they couldn't afford to fly them over to do anything. Uh, You had to live on base. I mean, I was paid on Friday and broke on Sunday because we went out in town. That's just the way it was. Now, Iwakuni was different. So uh, now, yeah, it, it, after yeah. Iwakuni, and that's that, when that's is that when your uh, your four year stint in, in the Marine Corps was up? Yeah, I went uh, I went back to Hawaii, and during during my Hawaii tour, before I went over to Iwakuni, I had I was out. Oh, it was the best day of my life. You know, I went and saw uh, Sonny and Cher at the Sheraton Hotel. Waikiki, right? And uh, she would come out and she would uh, sing a song and she'd come out in a different costume every every song. It's like I'd walk up to the stage and take a picture of her. She'd come over and smile. And it's like, yeah. None of those pictures turned out. Not a one picture turned out because they're all, it was too much light. But it's like I have a picture in my mind. <laughs> but it was, it was cool. On, on the way home, we had said, hey, let's get a burger um, at A&W. And I we pulled into the parking lot and I was sleeping in the front seat. And uh, all of a sudden we hear this thunder on top of the roof of the car. And it's like, then this guy jumps down onto the hood and off into the bushes. And it's like, Oh boy, here we go. And I was in the car front seat. My, my buddy shuts his car off and takes the keys and leaves. It's like, instead of just leaving, it's like, okay, here we go. I get out and I go over and help him. That's like, next thing I know, there's five of them around us. And the littlest one sucker punched me, did a somersault and spit my teeth out and started fighting. Uh, they left. They had more blood on them than I had on, than we had on us. But it was all <laughs> my blood. Oh, no. So, then I, I, so I, that's where I, I gained my respect for the doctors and the, the dentists in the Marine Corps. Like, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> We're going back. I have to. They put the same teeth. My buddy grabbed the teeth. He said, here, here's your teeth, Rob. And uh, I put them in my pocket and went back to the, you know, and got the, got them, put it back in. They put a cap in my teeth. That lasted about 10 years. Wow. But uh, that, So I, I was not home for two years. And I just missed the four seasons. Hawaii was a rock. I loved it. The beaches are beautiful. Uh, I just missed the Midwest and family. So I got out and they asked me, Rob, in fact, this general came up one day and he, and I, I made E4 under two years and I never made E5 because I was just in the wrong spot at the right, right at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had worked and trained were, were ahead of me. You know, when I came back from uh, Iwakuni, they were sergeants and it's like, Oh, that's cool. You know, that was right. I was going to get out anyway. They said, Rob, you want to, if you want to, if you're going to extend, we want to send you to training for uh, J79. I said, no, no, I'm getting out. So I got out. And uh, that was, I remember the day, it's like, wow, I'm going home. And you look at, you know, just uh, from then until today, and even being in the service, it's still a shock uh, just to get out, just go home and just back to the old, you know, where am I, what am I going to, where am I going to go? So I was back home in McFarland, living in my house, you know, and uh, I had, uh, Gosh, 
it was uh, that was 1978. I was down at the bowling alley. We had the the bowling alley was built when I was uh, I think when I was in the Marine Corps, right right before I went in, and that's where everybody met. I was down at the bowling alley with my brother and. Uh, my wife Sherry came in, and I had known her for quite a few years. Just uh, as you know, I used to see her in church all the time, and uh, I was having a few drinks, and she, I needed a ride home, so she gave me a ride home. And I had known her, not really that well, but who she was, and I, I proposed to her on the way home. She <laughs> dropped me off. She said, You're drunk, you know. So it's like, so we we did, you know, we I actually dated her. And uh, we were married. I got out in August 78 and August of 79, August 18th of 79, we were married. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, there's no reason that, I mean, I, I, I was, I never really dated in the Marine Corps. I didn't want to, you know, I just, I didn't want to travel. I wanted somebody close to me. Well, she was from, she's from uh, Aurora, Illinois. So I used to go down there and visit her when we were going together and she'd come up and visit me stay at my mom and dad's house so it was it was fun uh and i thought well why wait uh this is this is what i want to do so we got married and i at that time i was working in construction my dad was a plasterer for 43 years where he actually used a, a hawk and trowel and uh, put plaster on the wall and i could do that a little bit and i really i knew how to mix plaster you know it's and and i was good at i was a good laborer so i was a in the union a union laborer uh, I did that for five years, worked with all, and I knew all the plasters because they were around my, our house or our, the names always came up because dad worked with those guys. And so mm-hmm. I knew them all. It's kind of cool because I was able to work with my dad a couple of different times before he went to work for the University of Wisconsin plastering. So I was able to go on some jobs with him. That was neat. And, and I enjoyed it. As a laborer, I thought, oh my gosh, do I want to do this? For my whole life <clears throat> and i thought and i had so much respect for these these old labors i was watching these guys were in their 60s you know ready to retire and they're working circles around me you mm-hmm. know it's like wow how do they do that you and know, they've like, been I doing had, it for 30 years right yeah and, and it's it kind of put me back to like the marine corps it's like some of those guys were there for 20 years and it's like how do they do that and it's like i had never the longest i'd ever been in the job was four years in the marine corps mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like one of these jobs and then all of a sudden all of a sudden i get married and then we have our justin our first our first child and it's like well when we got married neither one of us had a job she quit a good job down in illinois and came up we lived in her mom and dad's cottage uh they bought a cottage in 1969 on lake wabisa that's how we met on the lake so that's how i knew her but it was just uh it was tough and that was in the 80s and Times were tough in construction, and it just so happened we were working out at Truex Field, Wisconsin Air National Guard, mm-hmm. and I had probably four neighbors that, that worked out there their whole careers. So I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm I'm talking to these guys out here, and one of the one of our plasters talked to the one of the supervisors. Hey, Rob worked on aircraft in the air, in the Marine Corps. He came up and said, Rob, you need a job? I said, Nope, I'm good. I did that, did this, and. I'm good where I'm at. Well, the next year we went back out there and I made a heck of a lot less money. And, uh, I was, I asked them, I said, you guys have any more openings? And he said, yes, we do. So I had, I had gone home. I said, Sherry, I was like, I'm looking at maybe joining the guard, but they had full-time 
federal civil service opening. So it was a full-time job. And just before that, my boss uh, from plastering said, Rob, you better start looking for some more work. Cause I always, I was a small guy and I'm always hauling these 98 pound sacks of cement around and wheelbarrows and everything. Just like I could, I could keep up with five plasters. I was just fast mm-hmm. setting scaffold, mud, pumping mud up in buildings around the UW. I worked on a lot of, a lot of buildings uh, on swing scaffolds, building scaffold around the civic center. It's probably like a 80 feet high. Just, I learned how to be safe working mm-hmm. uh, a lot from those guys. But I, I, uh, so one day I, I told, I went in the next day and they said, we got a job and I, I actually interviewed <clears throat> and he, before that somehow I interviewed and I got hired basically on the spot and I had long hair and a beard. I go home, I go, I went and got all my, my gear. I go home with a duffel bag full of clothes. And I told Sherry, um, can you sew my stripes on? I have guard drill tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. so it's like, yeah, I joined the Wisconsin air, air national guard. I got a full-time federal civil service. So it's, you wear a uniform, but then you have your, in the, uh, weekend warrior basically. Yeah. And I loved it. And it's a tens back then. I used to get letters from a guard monthly and I just read the first one and I just throw the rest away. Finally, I'm out there and it's like, this ain't bad. These guys, these guys, they're going running at lunchtime. So they must not be working hard enough. <laughs> you know, they don't... We, in the Marine Corps, we just, I always thought they, I didn't, some people ran, some of the Marines ran, but I always thought, well, they have a three mile run because they try to kill you before you retire. So they don't have to get any <laughs> compensation right. or any retirement. So I, I joined and that's, that's how I, I was at 27 years. And that was with the uh, A-10s as a mechanic. And one day the supervisor came in to me and he says, uh, Rob, would you like to work test cell? Cause he knew I'd work test cell in the Marine Corps. I said, sure, I'll do that. Don't expect me to learn it one day I'll at my own pace, but you know, mm-hmm. no problems. Right. I worked Tesla with the, uh, the A10 the TF 34 engine, best engine I ever worked on GE engines. Uh, they're awesome. And, uh, but that was, uh, that was an 84 and 1990, 91 is when that Gulf war, um, started, uh, ramping up the first Gulf war. And I was actually on a deployment, that's that's what's nice about the cold war cold war uh we used to go to um, england and germany every two years and just have a great time we could do stuff on the weekends go see things sites and and i did and it was nice then uh first gulf war broke out and then it was a desert after that so uh with the uh, a10 we were converting to f-16s uh and a lot of the f-16s that we 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 received from were from the air force actually i came down to mcdill air force uh back in 90 and 91 and accepted aircraft down here uh in florida that's where i'm at right now uh in largo at a condo but uh so it's like i just another i was a jet engine mechanic um then uh my It ended up the guy that one of the guys that went in the same day I was hired, he was hired too uh, back on the, when we had the A10 engine. His name was Dwayne Turner, and he ended up being the shop chief. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he hired me. He hired me as the hush house supervisor, the engine test facility supervisor for the F-16 engine, the uh, F-110-GE-100. They were Block 30 aircraft, 1980, or, yeah, 1987 models. Okay, so Truex Field, I worked on that engine as a mechanic and a supervisor in Hush House and a supervisor of the Hush House and engine shop and flight line for 20 years. Uh, and they just, those aircraft, um, they, they had them for 30 years yeah. on one aircraft. It's like we had 27 of them or at one, one time or 24 and we had lost aircraft. That's one thing about, uh, in the in the air wing, no matter what air wing you are in, you lose uh, you lose planes and you lose uh, friends uh, and sometimes pilots. Uh, just like in the Marine Corps, uh, almost every every base I went to, um, there was lot, loss of life for helicopters crashing. Uh, on the way over to Japan, uh, we had a F four uh, landed in. Landed in the side of a carrier. He missed the huh. ship, and we had another. I actually was um, taking an engine down to the test cell in Japan. I was going across. There was a, a building in front of me, and I saw these two parachutes in the air. I said, "Where the heck is the?" I thought, "Well, why are they jumping out of a plane?" But I didn't see no plane. Well, it was an F four, blew a tire, and the pilots ejected. Huh. Pilots were okay, but the aircraft slided off the runway and hit a truck that was stalled and the truck mechanic was killed that was working on it oh. i mean that's that's how fast it happens and uh I, and i had been around that quite a bit in the marine corps and that's one of the reasons i i stayed away from engines because i never wanted to be responsible for loss of a life because mm -hmm. i did something why i always did everything 100 percent by the book yeah. it didn't matter that way i'm i protect myself and i can sleep at night <laughs> you know no absolutely but, yeah, and with uh, as the hush house supervisor, I also had to I did the training for bore scoping. That's where you inspect the engines or uh, phase inspections on the engines. Every two hundred hours, they would do a phase, and they then they went to three hundred hours. So we do all the testing the engines at the hush house. They were awesome. It was the place to be because we could uh, in the hush house. It's a it's a building that's built. And it's, it's exactly what it is. You can go outside of the hush house and you can talk where it's all, all the noise is inside the hush house. Um, and you could back aircraft up into it too. So I had to, I was also a aircraft run certifier for the, for maintenance. And I used to run the, uh, the simulator all the time and teach everybody. And, uh, but, uh, our first loss of aircraft, we had an aircraft, and of course, even if it's not an engine problem, it always everybody acts like it's an engine problem. <laughs> so we lost four aircraft while I was at Truex. And the uh, first one, there's uh, there's a pilot got a oil light in the cockpit. And there's some he he let, he crashed right on Truex Field on when on landing. Uh, and he he got out or he his actually his parachute was on fire. Wow, because he. Waited too long, and his his parachute was on fire, and the the uh, the ambulance actually picked him up immediately. We we thought he was gone, and they took him. We didn't even see the ambulance out there. They grabbed him and took him right to the hospital. So he was he ended up okay. Good. Uh, but then, but you know, it's like one 
at that time my my daughter was playing soccer and one of the one of the fathers on the soccer team you know he says rob he says when i have a day a hard a bad day it's like uh you know it's just a bad day at work when you have a bad day it's 35 million dollars yeah right <laughs> like, isn't that the truth that, oh the biggest thing is it's no loss of life and it's like right. aircraft can be but that's when that's when uh in the air force in the marine corps when we lost aircraft i never was questioned at all mm-hmm. and i don't i don't know if the supervisors did all that probably <clears throat> um and it could have been because it was never engine related i don't know but in the air force it was it was crazy uh they would bring in a safety investigation team that would last for two weeks or more they wanted to make sure that not only that aircraft uh problem was solved but if any other aircraft had that same problem oh, yeah right they and, had to make sure and, and so i i would of course i would be have to be the one to go out and take the equipment out and show the inspectors uh what they wanted to look at they said we want to look at the turbine okay and luckily you know i i was very good at bore scoping and, and the a10 there's very little bore scoping it was all uh not really flexible bore scopes at all it was all just the, the like a rod and bore scope you look in and but with the f-16 you had to go in with like a four millimeter bore scope you had a six millimeter eight millimeter where and you had to go in there around turbines hmm. and be able to inspect the whole blade or you just look in and then you would turn the turbine wheel and you would spec those and, and, you know as they turned it wow. and uh it was i loved it but uh so i on that with that i decided it's like you know i i want to make sure when i'm training somebody they know i i know that they see exactly what i see and it ended up we had the best bore scope uh equipment probably in the air force and that's where i knew because because our officers and our my supervisors would listen to me hey this is what we need because i i saw other aircraft investigations they didn't know how to bore scope they didn't know how to bore scope because they tell you what they found they missed the bore scope hmm. so we actually had we videotaped 100 percent everything and it worked out really well wow. and that's just one of the things i did as as a supervisor uh and, and and it just worked out great but uh 30 days before i retired they you know i i didn't want to retire i was 56 rob you're getting old you know it's like you need to retire it's like hey i could go till i'm 60 right and i wanted to uh so they, I ended up, uh, they said, well, you're going to voluntarily retire. You have to sign this paperwork. I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up doing it anyways. Uh, but 30 days before I retired, we lost another aircraft. Uh, the pilot was okay. And it just so happened, my son Justin called me about like an hour after that. He said, Dad, I don't know what's wrong, but you need to get the hell out of there. Hmm. You know, <laughs> He could tell my voice. It's like, hey, yeah. it's okay. And it ended up being an engine problem. And it, and it was, and I was gone before the actual final came through mm-hmm. but i was i was the i was uh on a board the safety investigation board on a table i was on one side of the table and there was like seven or eight of them on the other side of the table asking me questions and everything i did because i i did everything right and i knew what was going on in every engine and during maintenance and they asked me questions about that actual engine and i could i answered all the questions perfectly because I knew what we did and mm-hmm. I knew there was a couple times where I had thoughts of, well, 
gosh, it'd be easy to ignore this, but I'm not going to. We're just going to tear the engine down to where we knew we, you know, uh, we knew it was safe. Yeah. Like uh, the first first question: Did you lose a rag while you were working on this engine? And uh, even at rags uh, on, around aircraft engines are dangerous yeah. if you don't have accountability. They they accounted for them. Wow. They check them out, and then they and they didn't have to be checked in every night because sometimes they would be stored around the engine, but you'd have to check them back. When they found out one rag was missing, I went back to the forums where they checked the rag out, and I said, go one week before this and tear that engine down to that point and then tear, then get the, get the forms, have QA look at it, and everything good. No problem. He said, good job. Hmm. And it's like... I, so I, I, I went through that and everything seemed to be okay. And I, I ended up, it ended up being a, a depot. Depot is where they build all the engine parts and we depot ship some dust and we put them together. And it ended up being, uh, they, they changed, uh, uh, when a gearbox went back to depot, they cleaned it out with the bead blasting. It's uh, fiberglass beads and they forgot to clean the fiberglass beads out of the gearbox. And it's, uh, wow. It clocked bearing oil supply tube and lost an aircraft on the second flight out of my shop. So, That's crazy. So yeah, but so it was. No, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, t- tell us. Um, obviously, I know you did four deployments in two thousand four, two thousand six, two thousand seven, and yeah. two thousand nine. Um, what what was that like? I mean, well, our first uh, before that, um, <clears throat> we after the first Gulf War, we would go. I went to Kuwait. I went to Saudi twice. I went to um qatar no not qatar uh kuwait saudi and turkey oh turkey was the first place and that's when you could actually go around out in town and everything so i i had been over to the desert in those four deployments uh but then saddam you know 9 11 changed our lives mm-hmm. and uh, that's when uh, our first deployment actually with the f-16 we went to denmark because uh, they wanted us to get a deployment under our belt so we went to denmark that was awesome uh, then our, our first uh, deployment to uh, support Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom Afghanistan was to Qatar. Uh, Qatar is a small uh, country, kind of based right on the ocean. And uh, we had had, the United States has like a 99-year lease there, uh, and it's a pretty safe place. We went there. Uh, the first deployment, and during that deployment, what well, Sherry had said to me, my wife, Sherry said, uh, Rob, if, if you have an opportunity to go out go out of town, don't do it. Will you do that for me? <laughs> I said, absolutely. But I said, if I have to go someplace, I'll have to go someplace. So we had an aircraft that uh, had an electrical problem, and it was in, at, we had to go land in Balad Air Base. And Balad is like 45 miles from Baghdad in the middle of the country, I thought. We always thought, well, we're we have F-16s that can fly, you know, Mach mm-hmm. <laughs> two, and they can get there in ten minutes, no matter where they are. Nope, that's not the case. When when you own the skies, you own the you you put your aircraft right in the middle of the country, so they can get wherever they need to go faster. Mm-hmm. And that's where we went. That's tried to go there. I took a crew, electricians, avionics, crew chiefs, hydraulics, and myself as the engine mechanic supervisor. And uh, they they gave us some training on uh, rifle training on when to shoot somebody, and when not to shoot somebody. It's like okay, wow. Uh, 
but uh it's like so they but they never gave us weapons <laughs> <laughs> so you got the weapon training but you didn't get the weapons yeah so they then they put us on a plane on a c-130 um in the middle of the night and we're flying all of a sudden i i get sick on a ferris wheel it's like oh my god c-130s uh when as soon as you hit iraq you're flying the terrain so you're flying up and down and sideways and everything else and the crew chief's looking out the windows and he's looking back at us you know seeing some tracers it's like oh this is real wow. <laughs> so it's, wow. we get in we and we we're doing a an, our approach and the base balad air base it was for the army it was camp anaconda or Balad Air Base, or at that time, that was 2004. Uh, there was quite a few troops there. And we we land, as we were landing, they were having a mortar, an attack on the base. It's like, uh-oh. Wow. So it's, they don't give us rifles. So it's like, I'm sitting there with my crew up against the bulkhead on one side of the C-130. And these guys, these guys on the other side, I'm looking at them and watching them. All of a sudden, they're in civilian clothes and they got beards. It's like they take these little suitcases out and they start putting weapons together. It's like, okay. I told them, I guess, let them go first. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we never touched the ground there. You know, it's like, but we had, you know, we had communication with our the, the troops that were there, yeah. the Air Force that were there. So we knew they were going to take care of us. Uh, so we got some training, training there. And uh, about uh, what to do during attacks, blah blah blah. Everybody, you know, they they lowered the the back of the C-130 and everybody ran out. Well, the the black ops, those were the guys that were ran out first with the weapons. We were good, you know, nothing. They weren't shooting at us. In, in Balad, it was always it was mostly all mortar and rocket attacks. That's all. Uh, you didn't you see the tracers going across the sky, but you, it was not. It was indirect fire, which is a lot different than direct fire. Mm -hmm. They. Indirect fire. Some okay. I'm I'm five miles away from you. I think I know. I'm going to shoot a mortar towards you, but the base was like 30 miles, you know, long, and they they were pretty good at uh, targeting the aircraft, the airfields. Uh, anyways, we uh, we got training, and the next morning we 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 went got to bed probably like three in the morning. I don't know. Next morning, seven o'clock, we hear boom, boom, boom. It's like okay, oh, now yeah. what do we? We we evidently <clears throat> they didn't tell us where to go when there was an attack, so we run outside looking for the bunkers because over in Qatar they had concrete bunkers. And all of a sudden, ten minutes later, somebody walks by. And said, "Hey, where where are we supposed to be?" He said, uh, "You see your tents there? There's sandbags around it. That's your bunker." Wow. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> it's like okay, but uh, you know, so that that was just the start of it, you know. And then uh, we were there. For about two weeks, we got the aircraft all ready. Uh, electrical problem was fixed. I did all the engine runs. And it, what was really cool is I had a, uh, one of the, the colonel that was in charge of uh, Qatar was a female officer, a colonel, really nice. Uh, she actually, <clears throat> a day later, she calls me up. And it's like I've never been called by a colonel at all in my career, or maybe you know, unless there's something wrong. <laughs> she actually called me. Said, Rob, how are you doing? I said, fine. What's the problem? What can I do for you? Well, I just wanted to know how you were doing and how how are the how is how's everything going? I said, perfect. We're being taken care of. We got things going on, and that was good. Then the then the uh, <clears throat> the the commander of the uh, base in in uh, Iraq was also a female colonel, and she came down there to the to see what we were doing. You know, 
making sure we were okay too. I was like, wow, this is the first time in my life I've really been thought somebody really cared. You know, it's like, it was cool. So you guys uh, it was, it was, yeah. made it back safely. Yeah, we did. We got back safe. Then uh, our next, our next tours, that was, that was in uh, 2004, then 2006. Um, and is when we were deployed right to uh, Iraq. And then we did this, we were at the same base. So it was really kind of neat because we saw every time we went back, we saw the base was getting better and better, more concrete, more, uh, they were actually putting buildings over the top of the tents, like a, like pole barn type things, mm. open sided pole barns with a double roof on. So if they got hit by a mortar, it would just blast the outside, not go through into the tent. Uh, it was just, and there was just so much uh, going on that was good there. And, and Iraq today still uh, is is okay. Um, it's I always kind of keep an eye on it. But uh, yeah, we I did when I was in Iraq uh, the first time. That was in 2006, and that's when they were gearing up. Uh, they were getting a lot of uh, the insurgents uh, with their bombs. And uh, one of the, a, a priest came down to our flight line one day. And he says, you know, uh, anybody want to work, do volunteer work in the hospitals? And I said, we're already working 12-hour days. I'm usually working a 12- to 14-hour day. And I was talking to him. I said, well, I, I don't want to take my mind off my job. And I have to be able to do this. He says, well we need help. We can't do it. The hospitals need help from anybody right now. I said, okay. Uh, I think the next day was my day off. So I went over and signed up to help in the hospital. Where do you need help? Um, well, the ICU. Okay. I, I didn't even know what ICU meant. I said, <laughs> I just signed my name and they said the Iraqi word. I said, okay. And it's the you know the intensive care unit. And so I go in there to uh, and started helping. They said, they said, you, you can do anything you want. You can, you can help in the chow hall. You can help. I said, I want to help where you need me the most. Mm-hmm. And that's where they need. So I, after my 12 hour day, I would go in there or 14 hour day and then work there for a couple hours, uh, and then go back and sleep and then get up the next, uh, get up at 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And it, and it worked out fine. And I had met some, some male nurses there that were, I was working with, uh, and there, there was there was the uh, Iraq soldiers, um, Iraqi children, uh, the women. I think were in a different ward, but from children to Iraq civilians, the men and all the, the males were in that ward. And I, the one day, uh, the Iraq general came in, and he, our ally came in. And he was talking to all his troops. It's like wow, the guy. You can see the guy he loved them troops and it's just like this it was just really interesting to see uh the other side their 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 families mm-hmm. uh loved them they what they all they wanted to do was be with their family and make a living you know and i had i had worked with some of these the soldiers there around bomb blasts and it was it was rough on them I used to have to take them just, you know, take them they'd have, over to the shower. Somebody would have to be with them because we couldn't trust, never trust anybody because mm-hmm. uh, they didn't know who the insurgent would be. And these guys were split open from their neck all the way down their belly wow. and taken. When, when you're around a bomb blast, it just, uh, it, it, 
basically explodes your soft organs. So they have to go in and remove them uh, the best they can. Luckily, you still have a kidney left or, you know, that type of thing. Mm. And they, ne- they never close them up on, all the way because if they got infected, they'd have to go back in. And we'd have to stuff gauze in the outside of them, you know, oh. and I, I did all. I mean, I, so, all your, so that, that was one of the things we did. I helped, I helped feed, feed uh, this one little boy was there. Both his parents were killed in a bombing. And uh, so he was there and he had a, a brain injury and I had, he wasn't eating. I, I was the first one to get him to eat because I thought, okay, he's a kid. He's going to, I, I just gave the, everything else away. Everybody likes watermelon and everybody likes fruit. And he started eating and I started making, I visit him quite a, every day I was helping him. Uh, and uh, and he, he ended up, uh, his uh, aunt and uncle came and picked him up. So mm. hopefully he's good. to. Uh, and then uh, the one day at the, uh, so as I left every day, they, uh, the nurses would say, hey, Rob, you're going to come back tomorrow? They said, yeah, yeah, I'll be here. I said, okay, tomorrow you can, tomorrow you can uh, remove a Foley. I said, okay. So I go back the next day, and I had no idea what a Foley was. And it's like, come on over here. You're going to remove a Foley. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that. That's beyond me. It's mm-hmm. like, that's. Foley is uh, what do you what do you call it? Uh, your uh, it goes into your bladder or whatever to go pee. Oh, <laughs> like a is. catheter tube. It's a catheter. Yeah, they said. I said there ain't no way I'm doing that. It's, like, <laughs> it's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, they said. I said okay, I'll do it. So I did it. And it's wow. like, I mean, I had the only training I had was the training you have during your. Uh, training for inspections you know everybody mm-hmm. knows how to pick it on everybody you go through all that mm-hmm. but these guys they needed help and they and i helped them wherever i could uh That's it was awesome. it was amazing and it made a difference it's like you know there was guys that were shot there was even an insurgent so one time there was a marine he had to watch the insurgent and it, he wasn't going anywhere i said well the marine had to go to the bathroom and i said he said hey can you watch him i said can you give me your weapon yeah. so i can watch him he said no he said, no, you're not going to have my weapon. I said, well, what happens? I was just like, just, just watch him. Okay. Yeah, so wow. Wow. So I had, there was good times too. And I, I also worked at the helicopter pad. That's where I started out working too, uh, where we unloaded the helicopters that came in with the wounded, uh, American and Iraq and even insurgents. And we, when they, they had somebody, they, their life was important too. They brought them into the same hospital whether they are enemy or our ally. <clears throat> and we took them from, uh, from the helicopters under, it was called Heroes Highway. Anybody that's been to the hospitals in Iraq in, in Balad knows what Heroes Highway is, where basically you're taking them from stretcher right into the ER. Hmm. And we would uh, unload them and go back and wait, wait for more troops to come in. That was 2006. Wow. Uh, then I also and, uh, went back in 2000. And eight, um, they didn't need help in the hospital, but they needed help at the CASIF. And that's where everything's acronyms in Air Force. Uh, and you don't have to know what the actual acronym, just what it does. <laughs> it works. But uh, <clears throat> so I, and that's where they would take the soldiers that were going back. They would get the soldiers um, able to fly back 
uh, on a C-130 or mostly a C-17, take them right back to Ramstein, Germany, and that's where the hospitals where they could take better care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were still, we're still it's a mash. It's look, it's just like a mash unit, uh, like you see on mash, mm-hmm. and uh, they're all, but they're all air conditioned and everything was nice. But uh, they would get those soldiers out, and I would. So we'd have to uh, somewhere ambulatory. As as they had a t- took a school bus. And they made uh, ambulance out of them with this kit. Is this amazing? They had uh, uh, stretchers on both sides. You could probably put six stretchers on each side, so you had twelve stretchers if you after they had them stacked up. And then oh. you had three or four seats in the front on both sides, so the ambulatory could walk in there. And the the one one that I always think about was this this young man. He had a, he had a rosary around his neck. I'm Catholic. I was talking to him, you know, and I, they, they always say, talk to these guys because uh, they and, and women, they need to know, they need to be able to talk about it a little bit. It'll help their, it'll help them heal. And I never knew that, you know, so it's like, we're talking about oh, how to work, how'd you get hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it just so happened that he came on and I was talking to him a little bit and we had to unload him because he was on the wrong bus. So he had, we had to be on the second bus. So we unloaded them, and I, I kind of got to know them a little bit, and we went back, and I put them back. We, after we loaded that busload onto an aircraft, we would go out to the flight line. They would have the ramp down on the C-17s or the C-130s, <clears throat> and we would, while the aircraft was running, we would take unload those uh, wounded soldiers and put them on that. It was basically a, a hospital plane. And nurses and doctors were able to go with them if they were needed. They had a staff right there. They actually performed surgery if they had to, I believe. Uh, but they, they monitored some of these troops all the way back to Germany. So we get I get back, and uh, we load this guy back on, and I'm talking to him a little bit. We had to go to the hospital, and uh, there, was, there was an ambulance that was going to follow us there. And one of the, the nurses that were in charge of the CASF says uh, the name of the person that's in the ambulance. And uh, this guy that I was talking to, and actually he was from Geneva, Illinois, and he was Latino. <clears throat> and uh, he said, what was his name? And I told him his name. He says, oh, my God, I thought he was dead. He was in the Humvee with me when I when we got blown up. Hmm. So he thought his buddy he thought his buddy was dead. He never, he probably never asked because he didn't want to know. Mm. And I just stopped there. I went and I went and got one of the nurses and I had her, them go up to him. And, uh, cause I, I didn't, I just wanted to verify. So I kind of just prayed mm-hmm. with him a little bit and let him take it. But that's, you know, this, those are those things. And other ones, other ones I always ask, you know, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's okay to, to ask, ask somebody about what happened. And, it, and it's very, sometimes it's like, Wow. Mm-hmm. Like two of them are and number one, army, when you're carrying an army person, they're always bigger, they're heavy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Marines were light. It's like every Marine I carried, you know, there's four of us on a stretcher. They all seem to be light. The the army guys were just massive. <laughs> you know, it's like that was phenomenal. But uh two of the Marines, uh, I said, Well, what happened? He said, Well, we we're having taekwondo practice and I broke my leg. <laughs> oh no. Wow. <laughs> okay, so yeah, another, uh, there was just a lot of, another guy, oh my gosh, he was army and he was up on a, uh, a tower and he fell off the tower and fell backwards and broke his back oh like 30 gosh. foot. 
it's like you think about uh you know getting injured by bullets and bombs it's like there's so many of our soldiers and airmen and that uh are hurt their whole life uh by a physical trauma that happened to them not not during a firefight yeah wow rob so 31 years in the service 27 years uh in the air national guard um Four deployments. You've obviously been through a lot. Um, t- tell me, do you remember the last day of your uh, of your military career? Yes, uh, it's, uh, July thirtieth, um, two thousand eleven. It was uh, my uh, in in, uh, in the Air National Guard. Uh, everybody gets a retirement party and a recognition. Uh, and I had I had it in my shop. I was. They usually had them in a club out at Truex Field, but the club was shut down because of, uh, I don't know, for some reason. So I don't have it in the club. It's like, I'll have it in my shop because that's where I am most familiar in, you know, in my engine shop. And so we had it there and uh, came over and they gave me, uh, first award they always give was to the, the spouse. So Sherry got her award uh, being a spouse for 27 years. And then uh, it, was, it was very uh, emotional. Uh, last day, I, I did not want to retire, but uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I was able, we were able to uh, survive. You know, we, uh, she she worked her, her whole life and I worked my whole life and it uh, worked out good for us. Uh, and it was uh, the military is what basically put my kids through, um, two of my kids through private schools, graduate high school and helped them get through college. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was amazing. I just, uh, I had a lot of pictures that, that day I'll never forget. Um, so, but uh, yeah, and that's, it was pretty neat. Interesting. A lot of, a lot of, of work. Well, we'll take a short break. Uh, when we come back, Rob, I want to talk about reintegration into civilian life. I know many veterans struggled with uh, reintegration, and so I'd like to understand your story about reintegration into civilian life and what that was like. And then we'll talk quickly about what you did life after the military, too. So we'll just take a short break. We'll be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Wiley X Sunglasses. Wiley X is a family-owned company founded by U.S. military veteran Miles Freeman Sr. with a focused determination to create the world's best protective gear for those that protect our country. Over 35 years ago, Wiley X was born on the battlefield. Today, Wiley X continues to pioneer protective eyewear and sunglasses, not only for our military, but for consumers as well. Visit www.wileyx.com and support the companies that support our veterans. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, You can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. And we're talking to Rob Lancher. Uh, Rob, thanks again for sharing your story with us. Um, Obviously, a a long military career right there. Uh, 27 years in the Air National Guard and then an additional four years of active duty with the Marine Corps. And um, 
you know, transitioning out after that many years had to be difficult. I have to only assume that, you know, uh, it wasn't easy. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your your journey as it relates to transitioning back into civilian life? Yeah, and what was what's unique about I guess the guard and and, and any all the bases that are continually doing uh, going on deployments overseas during that time to Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other countries um, is when we got off the plane, they told us when we were going back and you know so we could uh, prepare for it. So you get off the plane and you see your your family. It's like yes. You know, there's there's no better sound than when the wheels touch down on home on your homeland uh-huh. in in Madison. I always always looked at if I was on a plane and I could see out of the window, I'd see the tank farms. I say, "There's home right there." You know, McFarland's known for their tank farms uh, from for fuel. It's pumped in and everything. But uh, even those those deployments, they, we always had mandatory like 30 days off uh, just to. Re- get reenacted with your families because they're the ones you leave behind and they're the ones that are running the home mm-hmm. and doing everything. I came home and pretty much just listened and took care of myself and did whatever I was asked to do. Uh, and you needed that time off because in during <clears throat> when you're overseas, a, a 12 hour day can end up being a 20 hour day. Mm-hmm. You just have to do what you do. Uh, and uh, sometimes you just sit there on your, on your chair and just go through stuff time and time again. It's like very. I was very blessed that <clears throat> all of my troops uh, that went over with us, we all came back. That's great. That's yeah, great. We, yeah. So that 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 sense, it was good. But it 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 takes a while, and because we were uh, a guard family, we had each other. Um, nobody really started having problems that I'm aware of. Uh, you'd have your regular family problems, that type of thing, but mm-hmm. integrating back into the civilian life is because we were, we saw our weekend troops on weekends and, and to give, give our weekend warriors uh, kudos. I had every one of my troops that was going to college in UW Madison. These guys were engineers. They put their school on hold and went overseas they're, to me, they're the, the newest, greatest generation. They were, they stepped up. When I put my name on the board for deployments, the whole shop put their name on the board for deployments. And that helped me pick and choose because you had to have, you had to keep work going back home and you had to keep work going overseas. You had to have uh, people that were uh, trained in every different area. And, mm-hmm. and it worked, everybody worked together. Uh, but families, no matter how much you you prepare for a deployment uh, back home, there's bound to be something something go wrong. And there there always was. It's like I uh, this, this just so happened when we were uh, I was gone last week with you and Mark. It's like that's the longest I've been away from Sherry for a few years since her I. She used to come down here and watch her mom and dad because we were gone for so many years, away from each other for so many years in the mm-hmm. military. I just, mom and dad, but we haven't been away from each other since then. That's been like four years or for a week. That's like, yeah. And, and it, what it did is it brought back 
those memories of me coming home and me missing her. And it's like, I can only stay, you have to stay focused uh, when you're overseas, because if you have problems back home, you'll have problems on in the field. And uh, <clears throat> you're able to call uh, once a week. The last, my last deployment, 2009, we, I, I did everything I needed to do back home. And uh, got the fireplace, all the fire chimney, all cleaned out and everything. And I even stacked some wood in for the first fire. And I get, I leave on, I think I had a day off on Saturday. <clears throat> I came back on Sunday. and said, Rob, call home. You had a fire in your house. Everybody's okay. So I call back. Like, the <laughs> we had smoke damage in our house and the, had to replace the carpet. Everything. So basically, I got back home. They said, "Oh, you'll be out of your." house for two weeks it ended up i don't know i think that was that was before thanksgiving it might have been around in october and so we we didn't move back in until christmas so i stayed with her mom and dad at home for two months which was great uh they always took care of her when i was gone i knew they were always there how did uh, the military how did the military affect your kids when you got back because you deployed um after your children were born so that's um i mean how did that how did it affect justin and I deployed from the time my kids were babies. Justin was, I think, two or three. He had never seen me without a beard. So I had to, when, I, when I joined the guard, I had to shave, and I had him watching me <laughs> so he would know who I was. Lacey was pregnant when I joined the guard in 84. She was pregnant with Lacey, then Brittany came along later. But it affected them tremendously because we, since we were there, they knew all of all of my friends at Truex Field, uh, their kids knew my kids. They were we were good friends, uh, and we knew each other's families. We had parties together. Uh, that's one thing. When I became the shop supervisor, I had a, a Christmas party at my house. Sherry would. Uh, <laughs> it didn't matter what it cost, but we would have a party, and then we'd go over and for about three or four hours or hors d'oeuvres, and then take my whole shop, including supervisors, over to the Green Lantern, and we they, they, everybody paid for their own, but. Nice. You know, it's just a family. We have, we had our family, we had our guard family. Um, <clears throat> and, it, and it does affect you because I never realized it, that uh, I was gone not, not only during deployments during uh, Iraq war. It was when I first, when I first became a supervisor of test cell, the hush house, I, I was a supervisor, a hush house supervisor without a hush house. So it took them 18 months. It took them 18 months to build the hush house and every engine that was built up in our shop. <clears throat> I had to, they made me, uh, I was a truck driver and a couple other, my, my test cell troops were, uh, <clears throat> we made, they made us truck drivers. So now I take a, a semi and put an engine in the back of that and haul it to Sioux Falls, South Dakota for 18 months. Wow. And it was three and four times a month. And it would be at least a four or five day, uh, deployment every every time so i would get back and sherry'd be running the house i mean for 18 months and she supported it all the time it's like hey i was a supervisor she knew that and she knew me and i knew her and it, and it worked out it comes down to family support uh our kids uh the one Brittany was probably um justin and lacy uh, I think they had they had Uncle Mike and Aunt Lori next door to us. Sherry's sister lives right next door to us, so they always had them to talk to. And their kids had us to come over next door. It was, it was like uh, I always say, we always said, well, if you ever watch uh, Everyone Loves Raymond, mm-hmm. well, Sherry's Raymond 
Lori's Robert and Wally was the the old guy. <laughs> the, <laughs> old, the, the father. Yeah. Wally, Wally was a, a, or a he was a Korean War veteran in the Navy, and he ended up. We, we took care of Sherry's mom and dad uh, when I when I retired, and that was awesome. And he lived with us for the last ten months of his life. He had COPD, and he had uh, asbestos in his lungs from the Navy, uh, and that's that's another thing that happens to our service members. Uh, the Agent Orange in the Vietnam, the asbestos, wherever you always see that, mm-hmm. and it's just taking care of everybody. And eventually, you know, uh, it all works. But Brittany, I'm going to say, was Lacey wanted to go in right before 9/11. Lacey was thinking about going into the guard, and uh, we had talked about it. And all of a sudden, 9/11 happened, and we never brought it up again. And I didn't want her. Yeah, <laughs> to right. Realize it. Right. You know, but if if she would have wanted, I would have supported her. Mm-hmm. But Brit. Um, Brittany was always, Brittany was born into the, into and so was Lacey, but being our youngest, I went on deployments and I'd always come to her school and pick her up in my uniform or something all the time, you know, mm-hmm. when I got back. And my, the one deployment, I think it might've been the second one to Iraq, we were having a few problems with her and she was just, I don't know if she was still in high school but uh, she wasn't there to see me off. And we were getting on the bus to go out to the aircraft. And I went up to the first sergeant and I said, first sergeant, my daughter's not here. I am not getting on the bus to go out to an aircraft unless I see her. Doesn't matter. Uh, I'll go to jail. I don't care. He said, let me take care of it. Chief, or I was a senior master sergeant at that time. Let me take care of it, senior. He never told anybody. He just said, hey, we got to, we got to. Uh, slight delay uh, will be, he didn't, he didn't have to tell anybody. We just, he just delayed the bus. <laughs> it's like, wow. he was forever. <laughs> it's that's like, great. I never met him. In life. That's what a first sergeant does in the air force. They take care of their troops and in uh, the younger troops and the older troops. And at that point I was had more rank than he did. Uh, but so Brittany got there and uh, I said her goodbyes and that made us all that made, otherwise I'd have had a hard time the whole trip. Sure. So I say, deployment uh yeah and then the the one deployment i think well we ended up having uh sarai who was my first granddaughter and one of my deployments back home was the first time i ever got to see her walk so that was awesome uh but so i and here's what i always say to people is like and and even through 220 remember the good times remember the good times when you have i have i have some problems with pts and uh you just go back to, okay, that brought me back to this time, but remember what, remember the good time during that before and after, and it, and it does work. Mm-hmm. It helps me. Uh, there's many times, a lot of our, we'd all talk about it at Truex, but it's, it's like a hidden, it's still hidden in the service. Uh, PTS It's like, oh, you get, I get, I've had headaches. Yeah. We all had headaches when we got home. It's like, we, we just thought that was part of being at war, but it could have been the burn pits. You know, mm-hmm. we were all next right at the end of the runway and why you would put a burn pit at the end of a runway with smoke and seagulls all over the place. It's beyond me. Yeah. Uh, but that's all over, uh, you know, but re- coming into family life, it was rough because you didn't know who to talk to or what to do. Some people would say, Hey, why don't you just get the hell out? You're all volunteer. You don't have to go there. It's like, well, that's what I do, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, you just ignore those people. But uh, 
Well, I want to take another quick break, and then we come back. I want to talk about uh, what you're doing now with, you know, after the military. Um, You and I, obviously, and our families all started uh, an organization called Take Event Fishing, which happens to be our our, uh, nonprofit of the week. But as soon as we come back, let's talk about that. And then I want to talk about, you know, Sherry and and how she supported you over the years as, as far as, you know, being a... Being a, a military, you know, spouse, that's got to be difficult. So let's take a quick break. When, as soon as we come back, we'll talk to Rob about uh, life after the military. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. And welcome back, Rob. I uh, just wanted to, again, say thank you for, for taking the time to share your story with us and, uh, so you and I, interestingly enough, met at a fishing show uh, through a common friend of ours, uh, who and we both had yeah. a, a similar ambition, and that ambition was to continue to take care of our, our U.S. military veterans uh, well after their time in service, get them in the outdoors. Uh, you grew up fishing, um, as did I, and, and we knew that there was something there as it related to um you know, the natural healing powers of the outdoors. And, and hence, uh, we and our family started Take of Fishing together. And uh, here we are, what, 10, 12 years later? I don't even know. I lose track. But um, we're still continuing to, to help veterans uh, get them into the outdoors, either introduce them to fishing or, or put a rod back in their hand. And it's been great. Um, so it's been, it's been quite the journey. But before we get to Take of Fishing and, and some of those things that you and I are doing together now, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, being a military spouse, I know Sherry was a, a rock to you and uh, and really helped you. And and why don't you tell us a little bit about that? She uh, Sherry supported me. She knew um, I was going to deploy, and she supported me a hundred percent of the time. Even so, when I was a hush house supervisor for eighteen months, I never got. <clears throat> I don't think I got a stripe for it until after the hush house was built. It didn't matter, but she understood everything. Uh, she would. I would never say anything. She just said, Rob, go. And that, that's all I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was on every deployment that uh, went over to the desert with the uh, 115 fighter wing. And, uh, and even home station after 9-11, we were all, uh, we were uh, put on Title 10. That's actually active duty. So now you're Air Force. And uh, first, right at Truex Field, because we had the alert mission. Then we had uh, also went to... Uh, Langley Air Force Base, where we, I was there for like three months, where we did uh, combat air patrol over Washington D.C. Like, who would ever think that we're going to be doing combat air control, air control patrol in the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, that's just crazy. Uh, but it's just like, yeah, it's like with Sherry, she supported me on all of those. What was what's nice about it is we <clears throat> we could call each other. Uh, a lot and con, you know, she know I know what was going on. She was know what's going on, and when I'd get home, I think the smartest thing to do is just let them take over because they've been running the household. There was times when we were are in our career younger. Um, she, I was gone, and she had to take the kids to sports, mm-hmm. and we didn't even have a 
where my kids are going to Edgewood High School. Uh, There's a lot of money to go there. It was a private Catholic high school. And she went and bought it. She had to buy a cell phone because <clears throat> he played hockey. And he, they, would, they were in the Whistler Conference. And it wasn't just – they would go to Milwaukee. They would go two miles away mm-hmm. on a bus. And you would have to get Lacey and Brittany up, put them in the car, and go wait for them. Finally, she bought a phone. And what, what we found out is – None of the other kids had phones, so they everybody used Justin's phone to call their, <laughs> their family. Like, and here's Rob and Sherry, you know, I'm a jet mechanic, and, you know, she had a couple, two or three jobs. But, uh, and there's all these <laughs> great people, doctors and lawyers, they don't have, their, their kids don't have cell phones. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a need for us back then, and it, it, it helped her life. So yeah. we, we tried to do everything we could together. I always, she always said, Rob, you travel the world. You know, um, and I have. And when we retired, uh, I said, well, let's travel the world together. And that's kind of what we do. Only we don't since nine or since COVID. She's we don't want to really go overseas at this point, but maybe right. someday we will. But we travel together. And that's how uh, with uh, Vibrations Tackle, uh, when, the, when I retired, Justin was a firefighter down in Racine. And uh, he was working on different lures. On He wasn't a wood carver, so he's looking at metal. And he looked at a blade bait. The old blade baits have been around for now like 60 years. Uh, and he designed a blade bait with uh, to put a uh, uh, soft plastic tail on the back of it, interchangeable tails. And he actually said, Dad, this is going to work. Because like we, we were musky fishermen back then. That's kind of how you and I met mm-hmm. through the, the musky world. And uh, we, did, we did some fishing shows. That's where we met. And I think that next year we had a – we had a – uh, the two-day tournament. One day we fished for muskies. The second day we did a uh, veterans outing. Mm-hmm. And that day, I think, changed your life and changed my life and our, our family's lives. Absolutely. Uh, Who'd have ever thought we'd be where we are today? <laughs> uh, you know, after yeah. that day. And it's like being in a military career. I I recognize people that are having problems, and it, all of our our take of it fishing and operation healing. Hero board members probably do also. Uh, you can tell when somebody has a problem. Uh, the standoffish person, the the person that's quiet, the person um, that just doesn't want to talk about anything. And every we're all we're all human. We're all different. Yep. Uh, our, our our Vietnam veterans. I I look at them and some of them never wanted to do say anything, and I I respect that. But uh, it always came back to fishing. A lot of those guys were guides for fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fishing was always, that's how I kind of, I always enjoyed fishing. And I, when I'd have a tough time, I'd just go fishing, get my 10 casts a day in. Mm-hmm. It helps me even today. Uh, but uh, with Vibrations Tackle, uh, even Justin is a fire, fireman. He uh, has some PTSD. Uh, but he's now at home with his kids and, and doing doing good. And take a bit fishing has helped him uh, with uh, 220 and some other the Sparta project and yeah. ganglion block. So good. it's amazing how and, and myself, I I never realized um, I had PTS and, until after I retired. And, and this happens a lot to our veterans. Uh, after they retire, they're no longer. Uh, busy doing their day-to-day routine, being responsible for what they were responsible for. Uh, 
and you start your thought process goes back and forth and back and forth. And when I retired, I had, I don't believe I had PTS, but when I started having problems, maybe five years after I, after I retired, I, and to this day, I don't think not too many people at Truex know that I do. I went to the VA and I, you know, because I, I couldn't, when my mom and my sister passed away, um, I never shed a tear. I couldn't figure that out. I said, why, why didn't I cry? My mom had dementia. My sister Debbie had dementia too, who had Down syndrome, but I, I couldn't figure out why, why that happened. And, um, and I had realized that when I went to the VA, I had, I had problems uh, when my first supervisor, Dwayne Turner, when he passed away, it went hmm. back to that. Hmm. I never knew it. And they, they, they go back into your, your life and even your childhood. <clears throat> uh, and, and it's amazing um, how many of our veterans, police and fire, uh, what, what they see on a day-to-day, like, like with Justin, when he went to the Sparta, Sparta, it was like some of those veterans said, Justin, you've seen more than we've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as first a, responders and our, our veterans. And, and as you and that, know, it goes down into the family members even, into the children and that type of thing ab- too. Absolutely. I can, I can guarantee you if, you're, if you have PTS or if I have PTS, my family and my children and even grandchildren are affected because they see they, they love you. And, and they all respond differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, one might read books. Just one might um, go right up to you and give you a hug anytime they see you. It's like a little service dog. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Other one just gives you smiles all day long. The other one might yell back at you because they hear yelling. Mm-hmm. And it, it's amazing, and that's that's, and it, it comes down to the spouses getting along and being able to cope and to love, love through that. And it is it is hard. And then you know, even Justin told me, he said, "Dad, you have PTS." I said, "Well, let's get you fixed." Mm-hmm. You know, and Sherry Sherry knows it probably better than I do. She she can she can let me know, hey Rob, what's going on? You're irritant. You're doing this. I feel your feelings and she don't even have to say it, it's just her look and it's like okay i need to take a break yeah i need to do something and and you know it's like the, your family has it there's no doubt and and that's where i guess we look at take a bit fishing and operation healing heroes we morphed into taking vets fishing to um working with other nonprofits Providing to heal veterans yeah yeah, yeah. It's so important. I mean, we have to make sure we take care of these men and women. Absolutely. Rob, one of the things I want to touch upon, uh, I know it's near and dear to your heart, uh, is being around other veterans, right? You know that the camaraderie is great. And so you've turned to the American Legion and the VFW. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Um, I joined the American Legion uh, years ago, probably 23 years ago. It's probably after I couldn't have joined the American Legion after I got out of the Marine Corps uh, because it was during wartime as a Vietnam era veteran. But I didn't because we were just and, and that's what's happening today is our our veterans, they have their families um, and they're trying to cope with their families. They're doing everything. Kids are busier now today than they ever were. Uh, but we we recognized at our take about fishing events um, veterans and ask them 
are you a member of the American Legion? Are you a member of VFW? Are you a member of uh, AMBETS or any any veteran organization? Because um, they're not just they're not just a good old boys club. It is a place where you heal, a place where you can see. Um, and that's what that's what take a bit fishing does for that veteran. We we recognize that when when we had our first event when we had veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, veterans we had Korean War veterans, and I believe we might have even had a World War II veteran. I'm not sure. I know mm-hmm. Daryl Krenz as the POW for 38 months in the Korean War, um, and as Andrew, one of our was was Andrew Iraq, yep, or Afghanistan. You know, and that's that's where we realize we can really help somebody, not just by taking them fishing, but to mentor. And that's where some of our guides mentor to these veterans continuously. We don't even know it. And that's okay uh, because somebody's mentoring to them. Yeah. And that's what we do only on a bigger scale. To, to me, it's like I can take one veteran fishing or I can take 50 to 125 veterans fishing. Mm-hmm. If we can do that. That, that gets 125 families or it gets 50 families. And that's why we also invite the families of the veterans back to our event. Since day one, we have our fishing, our recognition ceremony, and our luncheon or breakfast now and invite the families back for that luncheon uh, and their recognition ceremony because it's good for that those family members to see their spouse with other veterans and see what other veterans have gone through and how they're able to cope. When I look at our Vietnam veterans, there was no PTS. World War II, what they call it? Uh, uh, battle fatigue. Battle fatigue or, uh, yeah, just, and they just came home. I And they say the greatest generation. Wow. A lot of them came home and they went to school. They went to college. They started businesses, but, if you look at them, and I, I always ask somebody, what was your dad? What did your dad do? What Was he in the service? And a lot of them, yes, he was a World War II. And the reason I ask is because that, that's tradition in their families. Mm-hmm. And there's a in families that have been to war than families that have not been to war. And when I say that, it's like the per, the, the spouse, and, it, and it's it's women today too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's women on the battlefield along with our men, men and women. So it's, and, it, and we're recognizing that more and more. The VA, all of our legions and VFWs, look, see, see who's running them now. If we don't, if our younger generation doesn't step up and start joining some of these, our, we always have the Sons of American Legion. They're, they're really busy. They're younger. They've, they've been through it with their family members uh, and to be a Sons of American Legion or auxiliary member. And it's just a uh, spouse or father or grandfather. And now I think it's even a brother. You can be a Sons of American Legion. Uh, but it's and, and it's good because the American Legions and BFWs and, and our other uh, nonprofit veteran organizations are helping in Congress to get the our, everything that a veteran is getting today through the VA. It, everything goes through. Uh, Congress, and that's why um, it's important to start today, not wait for 20 years after the Vietnam War or 30 years before they start recognizing these veterans. Uh, and I, I use the VA. I love the people at the VA. 
But in many cases, their hands are tied because of what they, they have to follow their guidelines. They mm-hmm. cannot just make their own federal. And that's, and I, I, I went to the VA maybe three years ago and when I started having problems and I, I realized then I did. And that's where, and that's, that's, I see veterans all day for 12 years. We see them all over, but all of a sudden I noticed myself starting having problems. It's like, we have to recognize it and never be afraid to ask for help. Uh, and that's, that's what we're about. I want to share a quick story with you, Rob, because you and I uh, both know Domingo Martinez who came to us, um, and I just did a podcast with him uh, this week, and I'm just yeah. going to share a quick story because it's pretty important that we, you know, I want people to listen to his podcast because it's it's absolutely amazing. But that being said, um, you were talking earlier about, you know, how we, uh, being around other veterans helps veterans and we put them in a boat. And so little did I know when veteran, when uh, Domingo signed up, his wife signed him up. Now he lives in Duluth, Minnesota. He came to uh, our uh, our event on Lake Minnetonka. And um, he yeah. had been in isolation for years, Rob. And, and when I say isolation, I'm talking in the basement of his home, right? And his wife yeah. said, you got to get help. And so she ends up signing him up for one of our take of fishing events. And um, and this is the first time I've heard the story, but he came to that event. And and when he was, he got checked in, and you know how it is, it's oh dark 30. And you know, at, at Tonka, it's, uh, it's dark out, you know, it's 5am, we're still checking people in, we put up lights and stuff to try and check in our, our veterans, check in our guide boats, uh, match everybody up and get them out on the water as safely as possible. And so uh, he had said, you know, I checked in and I, I walked over and I just stood by myself. And he goes, uh, I had talked to my guide via cell phone and, um, and, and, you know, prior to the event, as we asked them to do. And so the guide calls my cell phone and says, hey, are you here? And he said, yeah, I'm here. I'm standing by myself over in, you know, kind of in the parking lot there. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm here. I've, I've got our other veteran because there was two veterans in that boat uh, that day and with that guide. And he walked over and introduced the veteran to Domingo. And uh, the three of them went out fishing, right? Our guide and our two veterans. And he goes, and I just had a ball. And he goes, and I, I don't feel comfortable around people. He goes, I don't like being around people. He goes, prior to, to doing this uh, take of a fishing event, my wife would make me go to a Home Depot or a Menards and and take walk around for as long as I could, as much as I could take until I had to go back in the car. And she'd tell me it was okay to go back in the car once I didn't feel comfortable. And he goes, and that's how I had to literally reintegrate um, you know, out of isolation. And he goes, for me to do this event was so far out of my wheelhouse, I can't even begin to explain it. And so he said, not only did I go there, he goes, I come back, you guys have this great meal, you honor our veterans. He goes, I actually felt comfortable for the very first time. And he said, and then after that, he said, I talked to you and, and to Rob. And he goes, and and I told you guys that I was struggling. And he said, I got in the car because my wife drove me there. And, and they live in Duluth, two, two hours away. And he goes, we're driving home. And yeah. Uh, she asked how it was, and he said, I really enjoyed it. And he goes, I- I'm shocked to say this, but I really enjoyed it. And he goes, I spoke to the organizers, and um, and they cared. They actually genuinely cared. And he goes, I gave them my name and number. They gave me their information. He goes, but I don't think I'll ever hear from them. But, you know, uh, you know, and it was just, he's just thinking that no one really cared about him. And it was the next day that uh, I reached out to him and told him about Sparta Project. And um, he couldn't believe, one, that he had heard from us, but two, that we were willing to do more for him than what we had already done. And he goes, no one had ever done anything for me since I got out of the military. He goes, you took me fishing. You didn't ask me for anything in return. The day was over. I kept waiting for that, you know, 
know, bait and switch type thing. And, and he goes, and then you followed up the day after, and then you send me to Sparta project. And he goes, I, I really have take of that fishing to, to thank for my life. He goes, because if it weren't for you guys, I wouldn't be here right now. He had attempted suicide prior to, and he had plans of attempting suicide again. And, um, uh, and, and so little do we know, Rob, that even at check-in, right, how important it is for us to make our veterans feel comfortable and welcome and, and know that they're going to be safe with us. Yeah, absolutely. Jay. I, I love the check-in it works out good right now. You know, you're, you're sitting there getting everybody checked in and I can sit next to you and help Yep. and talk to veterans as they come up. It's like, you know, it's like, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I love, you know, and that's like, that's all it takes. And that's, you know, if you see that guy over in a sitting down off, you know, and we, we see him on every, every one of our events. Uh, and we make sure that we, they're, they're with somebody or somebody else. Look at, look at what we did. Was it two years ago in Mille Lacs, the, the veteran that, that didn't want to go out. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I can't be in a, I can't be on a big boat with too many people, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we'll get you a boat, separate boat. Nope. I can't do that. I, and the guy goes to the VA, he's on all kinds of medicine and he never had a problem till after he retired, <laughs> you know, he was he was a, a Vietnam veteran and he had his his story is amazing. But one of our one of our other Vietnam veterans all of a sudden stood by him and was with him the rest of the day. That's what it that's that's what a veteran does mm-hmm. when they, they recognize veterans and that's what Take a Bet Fishing does is recognize those veterans and get them help. We stick with them. Uh, and that, that gentleman, not only he went on that boat, as soon as he found out there was a bathroom on the, on the big boat, mm-hmm. on our, uh, boats, he said, I'm in. And I got a picture of him catching a fish and he says, okay, send that to me. They're not going to believe me that I'm actually fishing. <laughs> so, I love it. it was, I love it. Yeah. Well, Rob, that we, obviously, um, we need to continue doing what we do for our veterans and, and, uh, yeah. you know, it's, and their family members for that matter too. And, uh, and wrapping, wrapping up our podcast here, cause we're running on two hours. Um, I do want to ask you real quick, um, if there's a veteran or a family member listening to, to this episode or your show, um, what would you say to them if they're struggling currently with post-traumatic stress? Um, seek help. Uh, however you can. I have, I, I take the take of a fishing phone number, call it. Um, I've helped veterans get help that have PTS. All you have to do is walk into a VA hospital um, with an ID card uh, and they will, they will find out who you are if you were in the service or not, even if you've never been there before. Cause I've had to do that with veterans and help them. I've called VAs before uh, to get them help. Uh, and have have a family member take you to the hospital. There's other things besides the VA that all of the nonprofits that we work with, Sparta 220, Jay, we, and, and what's really cool is Operation Healing Heroes and Take a Bet Fishing um, feed off of each other because when you're on Operation Healing Heroes, you're all over the country finding other nonprofits. Uh-huh. That's what's really cool. We're, we're vetting these nonprofits and we uh, send our our veterans to them or go to them ourselves and become very good friends and help them out. They help us out. Reach out uh, however you can. Uh, join join American Legion. Join a VFW because they are also there to help you too. And there's, there's 
ACT Act that just came out uh, for Vietnam and for the Gulf War or the, the smoke pits and everything. Uh, there's there are things that they're not they're just discovering, uh, and it's going to continue. But mm-hmm. you need help. You can't you can't always do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. You think, and it's okay well, to get help. I, I mean, it's okay to talk about it, and it's okay yeah. to get help. It's not going to just go away by itself unless you have something somehow you know to really help you. You you need family help. You need counseling, uh, and uh, that's that's my recommendation. Amen to that. Um, Amen to that. You and I are not professionals, but we can help them by finding professionals for them. Yeah. In other nonprofits. Very true. VA and, so give, give us that phone number, Rob. Do you have the uh, take yeah. a fishing phone number? I do. Oh, boy. <laughs> I put you on the spot, didn't I? <laughs> no, I, on, on my card, it has my cell phone number. It's uh, just a minute. It's okay. You can give your – it. basically – you can go to www.takeofetfishing.org or www.operationhealingheroes.org um, and, and reach Rob or I uh, through that. But uh, Rob also answers our our hotline, our bat phone, right? And uh, yes, Here, and, here's yeah that phone is one four one three three six seven eight three eight seven. Again, that's one four one three. Three six seven, eight three eight seven. Perfect. And you answer or, that phone, so or you'll get right back to them if you don't answer it. So um, that that comes when that comes in, it says take a vet fishing, and I'll know to answer that right away. Perfect. Um, if they call my phone, it just comes in as a cell phone. Uh, I get their number. I do not get their number if it comes in to take a vet fishing. Okay. So if they don't, they don't leave a number for me and a message. I never can get back to them. That is that makes that. sense. Yeah. So. <laughs> Any any parting words, Rob, at, that you'd like to say? Yeah, Jay, uh, just uh, let's keep doing what we're doing and uh, help more veterans and, and families of Amen veterans. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, Certainly appreciate it. Good. We've got and, nine events and, coming up this year. Well, we, we've and, already had one. We've got another one coming up uh, here in April. Yeah, I would like to challenge other veterans also, Jay, that are, are retired, especially our higher-ranking veterans. Go join a, go join a nonprofit help mm-hmm. somebody out or, or be be involved with your communities because you'll there's it's so much it's so much better to help you just you it, it is a healing process by helping other people it is so, it is yeah on that note i'm going to just say uh, rob thanks again for sharing your story um life's a journey sometimes it can be a struggle but there's always something or someone out there uh to help you out um operation healing heroes take about fishing we'd love to help you out we'd love to put you in touch with other nonprofits, as rob mentioned uh that can provide the actual comfort and healing for you so Again, uh, post-traumatic stress is a silent killer, but there are ways of healing, so make sure that you seek them out. Uh, Contact one of us, and we'd be more than happy to help you with that. If you'd like more information on today's podcast uh, or information on Operation Healing Heroes, please visit our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And until next week, when we talk to another veteran and document another life, uh, we will uh, hopefully everyone has a great week. I'll talk to you soon. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. 
If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.